and welcome to AIJCast, a podcast featuring conversations and performances at the intersection of art, inspiration, and justice. I'm your host, Marthame Sanders. We're bringing you a special episode this week as we are working on our production schedule to get back on track for season 21, which gives us the opportunity to revisit our 2018 conversation with Trisha Hersey, also known as the Nap Bishop. This is a particularly timely moment to do so with the release of her book, Rest is Resistance, a Manifesto, which has recently spent some time on the New York Times bestseller list. Trisha and I spoke back in 2018 here in the AIJCast studio. Trisha Hersey, welcome to AIJCast. Thank you so much for having me. Happy New Year. Same to you. Yeah, it's a new one going on here. That's right. Yeah. As a poet, tell me about your, how you got interested, what your poetry is about, etc., Poetry is the thread through all of this stuff, you know, like I've been writing poetry since I was 12 years old, maybe younger. I've just always loved poetry. I fell in love with Nikki Giovanni when I was like in sixth grade. I was just going through the library books, just in the library and I'm just in the poetry section and this book just stood out to me. It was called Cotton Candy on a Rainy Day and it's this pink book. And I'm like, whoa, with this black face on the front. I'm like, oh, what is this? I'll pull it out. And I just started reading the poems. And I just fell in love with her. And I actually still own the book. I stole it, <laughs> which is so bad. But, I, my, you know, my parents couldn't afford a lot of books. So I was like, this will never go back to the elementary school library. And mm. you know what? Like years later, I met her and showed it to her and told her I stole it. And she was like, good. You, you deserve it better. They have money to buy a new one. And she signed it. So I was like, okay, that's cool. So since that moment, poetry has always been like my thing. I've always wrote poetry. Um, I really got serious about poetry. I think it was always in my journal. But I got really serious about it growing up in Chicago during like the spoken word movement back in like the early 90s. There was a huge um going to open mics and reading poetry like every night in Chicago you can go and just get on stage and read poetry you know Chicago's a poetry city with Gwendolyn Brooks being there and a lot of other great poets so I just kind of got into that scene like in my early 20s would go every day every Wednesday Thursday every night I had somewhere to go and I was on stage just going through these you know poems just in my journal reading them and I really like was able to figure out a way to like express myself and Mm. figure out a way to also hone my skills as a performer because it's like you have a mic get on stage how about reading your like most heart-wrenching love stories in front of people while they're drinking okay yeah (laughs) let's do it so i did that for years and years and years and then um just kept writing and doing spoken word i never thought about doing poetry in any other way but that way it was always like i wrote poetry to be on the stage and so that kind of became my thing I went away to college and kept writing poetry and then I started a master's in fine arts program at Chicago State University in poetry mm. and Gwendolyn Brooks had a, her writing center there and they had these huge black writers conferences uh, Hakeem Adabuti, Third World Press, Gwendolyn Brooks, Nikki Giovanni they would be there Sonia Sanchez would be like on campus on the south side of Chicago and I'm like walking around them like oh my goodness these are the people that I like really love as poetry mentors and they're here so I started a MFA program I um didn't finish it because of financial issues but mm-hmm. I became rooted in the community uh, at Chicago State University at this little small little gym of a college that's like right in the south side and so it was a beautiful place and poetry always was there and then at a certain point poetry wasn't enough for me 
and I really, I grew up in a, a family. My father was a Pente- Pentecostal preacher in the church of God in Christ denomination. So it's firing brimstones, passing out and body worship, like all of the beautiful things that make me the performance person I am today. I learned from that, you know, watching that, you know, like you don't sit down to worship. Mm-mm. You're dancing, you're it passing out. It is not a spectator out. sport. No, no, it is embodied. And my dad was a amazing preacher. You know, he preached and people would just come giving their lives to Christ. They just, Mm -hmm. I would just see the power of him. People just coming to the altar. You know, he was a singer. He was a really into music and he just was an amazing uh, preacher. And so in a lot of ways, I think that performative style poetry, it kind of bleeded over into my poetry work. And I was teaching poetry to young women um, in Chicago, right after college, I would go all over the city and teach poetry with an organization there called literature for all of us. And so at a certain point, me teaching it to others, teaching them to perform and me doing poetry, just it wasn't enough for me. It, I feel like my art just kind of like wanted to come off the page in a way. And mm. so that's when I started doing more of the activist work and doing a lot of the performance artwork, which is really guerrilla art spectacles, creating theater like outside and doing street art. You know, that really just pushed me, you know? And so that was where I started experimenting with different personas and experimenting with doing performance art that actually shined a light on social justice issues. So for instance, I would go and turn a liquor store into a poetry set. I would just like create, go in front of a liquor store and put out a big little set and stage and just do one night only. We're doing poetry tonight. Just because where I'm from on the South side of Chicago, there isn't a lot of places for art theater, for healthy food, for things that are positive. There's lots of liquor stores, you know, lots of violence, but uh, the theater and all of the art and all of the holistic things, the yoga studios, all that stuff. When I was growing up there, they were all up North in Chicago. So it was kind of, I felt like we were this inequality of Chicago being such a segregated city was just really making me really upset. You know, all the violence, the guns, the gangs. So I kind of just was like, we can do it ourselves. I just took my poetry and my performance and my activist work and I just blended them immediately mm-hmm. because I was, um, it was a reaction. I was just wanted to do something. So it wasn't like I was trying to be this cool performance person or this cool. I just really was like, there's an issue. We can solve it. Poetry can help solve it. How can I shine a light on what's happening? So I would go into like Harold's Chicken and make it a yoga studio. I would just walk in with a bunch of yoga mats and lay out yoga mats and start doing yoga, you know, like and just passing out yoga like cards to people. Just these little really um, art interventions, theater spectacles that I would do on the South Side that were poetic, poet, poetry based art based, but really activist and performance. I was really making a point, you know, I would pass out boxes of apples and fresh vegetables and fruit in front of like Harold's chicken and other like fast food places that were just all over the South side, you know? And so I really just wanted to shine light and my social justice lens came out in a way where I was like, I'm teaching, I'm working in these neighborhoods. I live in these neighborhoods there's an issue. There's so much gun violence happening. What, how can art and how can poetry intersect and how can all of those things, how can we go there and like kind of build a bridge between what's happening? I really wanted to play around with the intersections of public space and private space, like take it to the streets, you know, like get on the corner and read poetry for hours. No one is coming. Wonder Woman ain't coming to save us. So this becomes an emergency, a real life or death situation. Sound the alarm. Do what you gotta do. Pray to all powers, get everyone on deck. I'm scared to walk the streets at night. They pulling bodies out of high schools, drowning, 
a real slow genocide type emergency and I'm amazed at the survival. Poetic therapy was a big thing I was into. I would um, go to places where people were just shot. You know, there were so many killings in Chicago yeah. around the time when I was growing up. I lost two cousins there. Just like mm. the gun violence was horrible and still is in a lot of ways. And so I would go to a place where it was ha where it had just happened. I would read poetry for eight hours. I would read Gwendolyn Brooks on like mm. a soapbox with a bullhorn. I would just do this poetic therapy because my theory was... Poetry can heal and our communities need healing. So why not, you know, um, read poetry from outdoors so people can hear it and, and kind of be healed in a way. So I just kind of did a lot of spectacle work and played yeah. around with a lot of performance and creating theater with the community and outdoors. So I'm curious as because I know that with Pentecostal and Church of God and Christ mm -hmm. backgrounds, there there are varieties, obviously, because every every church is exactly. different, right? Yes. Um, there's the ecstatic experience that's part of all of it, and yet the theological emphases can be different. There's some churches that are very community minded, mm -hmm. and some churches that you might say they're so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, totally. So I'm curious mm -hmm. about was that piece of um, recognizing that you're in this place that was you know, Chirac, it was, a, yeah. it was a, a place where real tragedy and real abandonment and evil mm -hmm. were taking place. Was that something that was part of the church life Absol as well yeah. in terms of looking outward? Absolutely. I think, um, I think when you start talking about black church and at the, the root of it, um, black church is revolutionary. Sure. Black church is resistance. And so in a lot of ways, my church, I didn't know at the time, but when I was growing up as a child, like a baby all the way up until I started looking back at it and I'm looking at it like, wow, this is a place where I'm seeing everyone who looks like me. They own the building. <laughs> they own mm. like everything on this block. They like are black people who in a lot of ways are resisting what was placed on them. And they took this religion and remixed it. And so where my church was in Robbins, Illinois, right outside of Chicago, it's an all black town. One of the first like municipalities. Um, it's mm. a real beautiful historic place for black people. And my father was, I think the point person who kind of like let me see that church could look in a different way. I didn't know that churches didn't feed hungry people. I didn't understand. Like I learned that later, <laughs> but I didn't yeah. know that that's just what churches didn't do that. I just, it was just part of what the church was. The church was in a neighborhood that was very poor. And so every Sunday they had food, they would feed people. My father would do Bible studies in front of a liquor store. There was a liquor store across the street from the church. So my dad would be like, people aren't coming to Sunday school. So we're going to take some chairs over there. And we would just, he would just put chairs in front of the liquor store and do Bible study wow. with the people. And he, and it was just, that's what he did. You know, the church was always open. People couldn't eat. They couldn't um, eat. They would feed them. People needed a ride somewhere. They would give it. So I just really saw the church, as an extension of the community. And it, I never knew anything different. Like I was very sheltered in a way that I was black Pentecostal church of God in Christ. My dad was a pastor preacher's kid. I was there every day almost until I went away to college. So I went away to college and just started learning about other people's churches and was like, Oh, they don't do that. So I right. really feel, and my father also was a very um, militant man. You mm. know, he, grew up in a time during like the black Panthers party and the civil rights movement. So he was really deep into a lot of that, um, ideology, you know, from a young child, he was really into like Marcus Garvey and would like give me books about Q 
Cuba and like read this. You know, he was really into conspiracy theories and he was like this black militant man mm. who um got kicked out of high school for putting up the power fist. Like and so he he really was unique in a way and then later yeah. on he became got a calling to go to church, become a pastor and a preacher but that always was there. still part of it it was yeah. always part of it. he always was like he was anti um uh, military i remember we were young he told us if anyone ever tries to recruit you to go to the military don't do not have them come to my house because wow. back in the day they would bring the, they would come to your house from high school you know they would come and knock and be like we got this you he filled out a card and my dad was like, do not come here. He was very anti all of that. So he was like... Well, the military has been away, quote unquote, mm-hmm. out for a lot of black folk for, exactly. for decades, right? Yes. And he was he was like, I will work three jobs. If they claiming that they'll pay for you to go to school, do not. Never. So he was very militant into politics, read all the newspapers. He wouldn't say it. He's not here anymore, but... He, as I'm growing up, he would never have said he was a black liberation theologian, but he was, you know, if you read James Cone, that my dad was on all of that. Like, but he never read James Cone. So he just embodied it in that way from political lens. So that stuck with me. I think that stuck with me when it came to creating art, when it came to um, being a person of faith, when I decided to um, go to seminary, like I never would have thought I would be in seminary. Like it was never on my radar ever in my life. Like I never, I, I came to seminary when I moved here to Georgia seven years ago, I decided I wanted to go to school and I just started looking up all the schools here. I never been to Atlanta. I wanted to know what schools were here. What brought you to Atlanta? My husband's job transferred okay. us. Yeah. So I came down and knew I wanted to go to graduate school. I thought maybe I would go for theater. I thought maybe I would go for English for teaching. Cause I've taught in the school system a lot. But I just landed on Emory and landed on, I went to the Candler's page, the School of Theology, when they were talking about stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, this kind of stuff. It was like this whole concept of being in a community. And it just brought up the ideas around what I grew up around. And I also knew that I wanted to go and ground my artwork. I didn't feel like I had a call to be like be a pastor or a minister. I went to get my MTS. So I wanted to really go from the research aspect. The of MTS it. is the, the master of theological studies. It's not the MDiv. Which MDiv is, more is the professional degree profession- towards ministry. Yeah. Towards ministry, tra- towards ordination. Yeah. So I sent in my um, application and, and the admissions director called me and was like, um, we, we love all this poetry and performance stuff you're doing. Like, we really think that the MDiv could be for you just because of the work that you already do as a community activist. So when I went to seminary, I was already a community activist for 15 years. I already mm. had done all this work. I really wanted to go and do research around the black church and kind of let black liberation theology, womanist theology ground my work as an artist, as mm. a poet, as a theater maker, as a performance artist. I had a clear vision when I went and then I accepted to do the MDiv and that whole vision just went out the door. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. So it's a whole <laughs> different life. It just became, it opened my mind to so many things when it came to black liberation theology. Like I feel like my work that I've done as a poet and as an artist and a theater maker is black liberation theology hmm. just come alive. And it's womanist theology it always comes from the lens of black people of the text being a liber- text for liberation, of resurrection, of community resurrection, of empowerment, of really liberating people to live to their highest self. And mm. I felt that black people in America need need that. You know, like the liberation tool that it can be used for, it, it was just so evident to me. Trisha Hersey, the Nat Bishop on AIJ Cast, will be back with more of our 2018 conversation in just a moment. But first, a quick word. As always, I encourage you to visit the AIJCast website, AIJCast.com. 
which is a great place to find out all the information you need and connect with our artists, including their news, information, and products. We've got links there to Trisha's book and the amazing work of the Nat Ministry and much more. Also, a reminder that November is fundraising month here at AIJCast, and with that in mind, we have launched our Patreon page, and you can find a link there at our website or by going directly to patreon.com slash AIJCast. It's a great place to find ways to support the work of AIJCast financially and for us to show our gratitude to you for doing so. And again, you can find all of this information and so much more at our website. Just go to AIJCast.com. And now, back to more of our 2018 conversation with the Nat Bishop, Trisha Hersey. So tell me about Lady Terror. <laughs> Lady Terror is the one who goes into the um, Harold's Chicken and does the yoga. She's the one who... She's the gorilla theater. She's the gorilla spectacle maker. She's the one who just took it upon herself to build a soapbox in her basement because she was tired of people not being upset. Like I really was so, when you live in Chicago and you hear about the violence constantly there, it, it becomes a thing where, okay, it, it doesn't even shock you. It's like a numbing sensation. Mm. I remember being there right before I left to move here. And it was like, you know, baby was shot. Oh, okay. Did you hear about that on the news? I heard about it. Mm. Yeah. Some a little girl got killed down the street. And I mean, it was just matter of fact, it was so matter of fact. And I just, thought to myself why aren't more people pissed about this why aren't more yeah. people like mad and angry and why, upset why do you think that is i mean i feel like it's a numbing that is there i feel like to get through the day you kind of have to numb out you've heard it so much to survival it's a survival thing for people who live in the communities where it's happening yeah for people who don't live in the communities where it's not happening they don't care right. <laughs> the city right. doesn't care the mayor their mayor daily when he was the mayor didn't care the, i mean the city of chicago didn't care as long as that stuff wasn't happening up north downtown that's fine keep it on the south side the segregation of that city is evident it's real it's serious it's, it, it's structural. It's done for a reason. It's been done since the fifties and the forties when we have the red line and how, I mean, it was done very for a reason. So I feel like they don't care. Mm. And I really feel like the ones living in the community are numbed out. The ones outside ha have no care about it at all. So lady terror, you, mm -hmm. re you refer to her in the third person, but let's be clear. You are lady. Terror. I am lady Tara. She's a, she's a theater persona. And yeah. I really was playing around as a theater person with a persona that I could create that could actually do these things for me. And so she's the one who would go out and just walk into a yoga studio just walk into a Harold's Chicken and make it a yoga studio. I wouldn't, I never asked permission to do any of these things. I never got permits. I never told anybody I was coming. I had my brother is a photographer. My sister-in-law is a filmmaker. So they would come with me. We would be in our car. We would just pull up, take stuff out the truck, set up and go. And it was just, that's what we did I, um, for years. It was just this persona. And when I came to Atlanta, I m messed around a little bit with her persona as well. I, um, did some stuff in the West End where I created a um, help booth where I would sit on corners and people would come and have issues and problems and I would just kind of do poetic meditations and therapy with them around what was happening. So And also reading poetry on corners. I did that a lot here on the West End as yeah. well. Because poet, poetry to me has the power, once you hear it, to like kind of change your life and take it into a different um, place. I feel like poetry, the root of it is so watered down into the like 
piece where it's just filtered down to like the realness that it really can get to the heart of things quicker than other types of writing. Mm. So for me, poetry in that way was direct. It was um, about social justice. It was ritualistic in a way. It was about really letting people meditate and chant and use words to heal. And I really like believe that those things can help. I've watched poetry. I've taught poetry for 20 years now to young people of all ages. And I watch poetry change people's lives. It's Mm. not like just saying it, you know, it's serious. I've seen people who like are on the verge of suicide and depression and just don't even want to speak. And you give them a poem and you give them Nikki Giovanni, you let them read some Maya Angelou, you let them hear some Langston Hughes or hear, um, a haiku by Sonia Sanchez and you tell them to write in a style in a way that's free to, you know, so it allows people to have a way to enter into something they could never say. I mm. think poetry allows that. Mm. I'm curious. Well, you, you talk about poetry being effective because of, because of its directness. What it, what is it about poetry as opposed to prose or opposed mm-hmm. to other forms of words that mm-hmm. really gets to the heart of it for you? Yeah. I think poetry is very spiritual. I think it has the heart that prose can have, but when it comes to a poem, it can be three lines and they they punch you in the chest the same way if you read a whole book and you close the book like that was a great book, but a poem can uh, do that within three lines. And Mm. I think it's because what it can, it's a connection to something else, you know, in a lot of ways that's that spiritual. It's like a, antenna into another language you know poetry is its own language in that way and it's distilled it's so filtered down and distilled to the nittiest grittiest detail all that other stuff has to go away you got to get to the heart of it it's stripped down and it's to the heart of it and so when i teach poetry i'm like details details the micro histories of your life the little smallest details of what can bring people together and connect someone else so instead of a a child writing a poem just saying the flowers in the tree or the flowers in the field what kind of flower what color flower what did it smell like what did it make you feel like it's the senses it connects to an um somatic and embodied way the same way i think black church does you know and so it's incarnation it's It's, incarnation it's it's faith made made human yeah absolutely and a lot some of the best preachers i think are poets you know Mm. that people always say the poets the best poets are the best preachers preachers are poets um dr Teresa fry brown at candler they call her the preaching poet Mm. because her i mean i feel like when you look at that when you look at someone being able to use words in that way i think poetry is so stripped down it doesn't allow you to lie it does not allow you to fluff it out. It allows you to get to the heart of it. You only have these many words. Put it on the page. In what way will you as a poet put them? Yeah. How will you move them, you know, and place them so that they affect you in a way? I'm wondering if you, if Lady Terror or, or someone else <laughs> did the same thing with folk on the north side of mm-hmm. Chicago. Folk who really didn't yeah. care about what was happening on the south side. That's such a good question. Yeah, because Lady Tara, I had a poem that I would read about when I would do my Lady Tara bit. And I would always say, um, you're pissed. Why? I'm pissed. Why are you so calm? Mm. It was always like, I want to make you uncomfortable. Like I'm ranting for a reason. So ranting, screaming in people's faces on a bullhorn, it became this whole spectacle it was to cause attention. And I think it also caused attention to the people on the North side. And, and in some ways could wake them up because yeah. I did some stuff on the North side as okay. well. I would do shows and people would come out and they would be like, 
yes, I get it. I see it. Like, it's like a light being placed on something, like illuminating. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that's really the whole point of it was I just wanted to illuminate an issue for people to draw see, attention. draw attention in a way that was who's not going to pay attention to a woman standing on a bullhorn <laughs> on the corner, you know, screaming in someone's face about why aren't you paying attention? You know? Yeah. So it was like very direct. It was very about ranting. It was always like ranting for a reason. So in a lot of ways, a lot of my work is also very, um, it's playful. It's supposed to be in a little bit ways, hilarious and ridiculous. Yeah. You know, like this woman standing on the corner, screaming in people's faces, going into a yoga studio, like taking issues into her own hands. Yeah in DIY doing it yourself because the president isn't coming to save us. Mary is not coming. This person isn't coming. Like this is a solution. It was solution based in mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a, um, there's kind of a trickster character to mm-hmm. it, right? And the old four character, yes. the trickster who comes in and stirs things up. Definitely. That's exactly what it was. Like who is lady Tara? Like, what is she doing? And just come watch, you know, like what, are, why aren't you doing something? It was yeah. always a reaction. Like I wanted to push people and say, I'm doing this. What about you? What else could you do? So names, the name lady terror is provocative. Yeah. I'm curious about that choice. Yeah. Like my, my name is Trisha. So people have always called me lady T that's always been like a nickname my whole life. It's like, what up lady T lady T, you know? So that's always been like a little nickname. And one of my friends the other day just texted me lady T when we going out. So it's like this thing that people call me. So the terror part of it is what I felt like I was experiencing living mm-hmm. on the South side, like with all the gun violence, like I lived right in the heart of the wild hundreds is what they call it. It's like, right. The streets that are 100 all the way. And so it was, I mean, it was constant shootings. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was literally one day I woke up and it was like SWAT, like running in between my house. And I was just like, Oh, Okay, I guess I should look out the window and see what's happening. They were like going to the door house next door, like to get some people who had warrants and mm-hmm. it was just constant like walking down the street, you would hear, you would see it. It just became so normalized yeah. and it just it really I think the PTSD starts to set in. Right. The post traumatic stress of that all and then of hearing these stories and then uh, at a certain point, I became obsessed with the stories. I became obsessed with following them, reading the newspapers, following what happened to the families. You know, mm. like with my own cousins. I had two cousins who were killed. Right. And one was found in, um, he was in a gang and he was found um, in a park shot in the head. You know, it was just like, oh, Brian was killed here. My other cousin was killed here. It was just like constant. You didn't ever knew when it would happen. Yeah. You know, and so in that way, I kind of felt like, what could I do? And I felt like art was the least I could do. And if and I really felt the power of art that yeah. it could in some ways, if not change things, at least help me deal with it. Mm. At least help young people deal with it. You know, cause when I would teach most of the kids would be like, Oh, I know someone who's been shot. I saw right. someone shot before. So it was like that therapeutic piece around it. I thought poetry was always what could help them. And, mm. it, and I just threw it out there as an idea and they always latched onto mm. it. Trisha Hersey on AIJCast. You can find her and the Nap Ministry online at thenapministry.com. On our next episode, we will get back to our collaborative process and part four of that process with filmmaker Weston Manders. AIJCast is made possible through the support of listeners like you, and we offer several ways for you to do that. One is directly through our website, AIJCast.com, and there's a link there that says support. And the other is through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash AIJCast. We also love to connect with you in the social media spheres. We are there on a multitude of platforms where our handle is AIJCast. 
Our theme music comes from our house band, Marred Fame. And we are engineered, mixed, and produced by the tragically hip Al Mudif, who has a very convincing way of motivating the production team here at AIJCast. Screaming, hollering, cursing. And I'm your host, Marth Ames Sanders, encouraging you to create some beauty of your own. And remember that the world isn't truly beautiful until it's beautiful for all. Until next time, I hope you'll paint your own canvas with justice and peace.